Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Oh. Hey, Ben. Hello. How are you? Stupid question these days, I know. Uh, you know, uh, dealing with everything. Um. <laughs> What's the date today? I feel like any kind of, like, <laughs> it's June 8th. You know, I woke up this morning with an intense disorientation. I did not. And I, I, for like five minutes, I couldn't place what day it was. I definitely didn't think it was a Monday of all days. I thought it was a Sunday for half the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For half the day, yeah. <laughs> it's a long time. Well, I, I have today off. Today is a holiday for me. Yeah. So yeah. it's very disorienting. Very Sunday vibes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, yeah, I think we, we do want to acknowledge uh, all the upheaval that's currently happening right now in the world, and we're all still kind of figuring out how best to process it and figuring out how best to engage with it and advocate, you know, for some major, major changes uh, in ourselves and in the world. Um, but I think we're also kind of using this podcast to talk about some different subjects, subjects that will undoubtedly overlap with feelings and occurrences and attitudes happening right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to do my quick introduction here and then uh, you can kick it off for what we're talking about today. Yeah. I mean, before we get off that, I'd just like to say that we may process it at another time, but also acknowledging that we are two white people and it is um, definitely our space to like step up and talk about this at every opportunity. Um, but we've been planning an episode on Damien for a while and this, uh, you, you know, I highly recommend this book to people, but you should absolutely go and read a bunch of other like books that are, you know, being touted right now, uh, as very, um, educational in terms of being an anti-racist ally. Um, so it's, it's a fucked world and, um, it's, it's, um, we're just going to take a little, a little break from our various involvements and, and talk about this book today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, <laughs> acknowledging what's going on while also talking about something different is, it's <laughs> sometimes challenging because that's kind of a lot of what's, a lot of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. But bring that into the space maybe too. Yeah. Like, it's hard to yeah. escape. Yeah. Well, are you searching for a higher meaning behind our current political and ecological predicaments? From the fightful justice in the material world to traversing the mythological themes of the metaphysical wonderverse. Ben, me, and Fiona, you. Keep up with the new and check in on the old in this odd, odd, very odd world. Welcome to Oddcast with Ben and Fiona. Uh, or Fiona and Ben. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Um, so, what, what are we talking about today? Uh, well, Ben was really um, nice and said, hey, I want to read more. And I said, yeah, me too. Let's read a book together. And uh, we actually settled on uh, our first in a series of book discussions is going to be uh, a book I read in high school called Damien by Herman Hess. And that book uh, might have been one of the most influential books of my life. Uh, it really impacted me at a very uh, impressionable age. 
and has stuck with me ever since. And I think that the themes really just are eternal. So mm -hmm. um, if you if you haven't heard of it, Hermann Hess is uh, he was a, a German born um, uh, Swiss poet, writer, painter, uh, psychology aficionado. I don't know. He, he had a couple of he was also like in um, in the army at one point, I think. Um, yeah. But anyway, so he wrote this book. Uh, it was originally published under the pseudonym Emile Sinclair, <clears throat> uh, who's the, the name of the narrator of the story, uh, one of the main characters, one of only a handful of main characters, only one of a handful of characters. But um, uh, then it uh, it's uh, apparently the book is semi-autographed uh, autobiographical um, and relates to Hesse's early conflict between his own carnal desires and the strict moralism of his parents. Um, and he really uh, was getting into Carl Jung at in the early uh, 1900s when this was published. And so a lot of that, uh, a lot of this book is him processing that early part of his, his uh, life. Processing. Process. Would you would you um, consider this book to be like a coming of age story? I know it's it's a it's a corny thing to even say. I feel yeah, like, but I mean, it's actually it's categorized as a young adult adult novel, um, and it's absolutely a coming of age, discovering yourself kind of book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can definitely I can definitely see why like reading a book like this at a certain age would just be completely. Uh, uh, you know, transformative. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I'm really interested to talk with you, who's re read it at an entirely different point in your life. I think those are two really interesting perspectives that we can bring to this podcast. Because mm -hmm. um, for me at the time, I was just like, the big questions of my life were, what, like, how am I different? How can I like differentiate myself from other people? I was so trying to fit in and be part of, you know, I, I had my my friends that I wanted to be part of. I had partners that I was like overly just in, you know, these bad, <laughs> overly attached relationships with. And I felt like I lost myself in a big way. And this book came to me like my senior year of high school. And it was kind of like a, a bit of a saving grace for me because I was, it's so intensely focused on on just like self-authenticity and answering your your inner higher calling yeah yeah when was this book written what 1927 1919 oh 1919 yeah wow huh okay oh which oh that that was my tie-in um to going back to black lives matter um uh protests that are going on right now but um there was this great quote that uh one of the groups i'm involved with car w um relayed on a call yesterday and it was uh somebody in uh, on a black lives matter call said uh, there are two pandemics right now uh, the covid and racist police one since uh, 2019 one since 1619 and now we have another uh, another year ending in 19. Hmm. <laughs> Not that, that, really, <laughs> that just tangentially relates but <laughs> that's some sort of like mayan calendar like uh, conspiracy theory stuff yeah yeah the oh, alignment yeah. what does it mean what does it mean what does it mean every uh right before the new decade there's a big turn of things yeah 
you ever, th- I know I feel like we're already going on a tangent right now, but you ever think about like, this is basically how people were in 1920 are like us. Like this is like 1920, like people, a hundred year people of versions of you and me a hundred years from now, assuming there's fucking people <laughs> are going to be like, man, those people, you know, born way back in the night. What were they thinking about? You know, it's just like crazy to think that we're, this is a stupid, this feels like a really like, like high comment or something. Or just like we, in 1920, stuff was going on. Now it's 2020. And this is a really dumb. Totally no, no. I mean, not in the context car. of discuss. It's not dumb in the context of discussing Damien because like these back to the whole eternal themes thing, like this book is set in, it, the book ends discussing World War One and this huge generational upheaval of, um, of just the world going to war and it feeling like literally the end of the world was upon them. And we are kind of in a, another very huge societal upheaval moment. And yeah. so yeah. it's relevant. Yeah. Okay. So briefly, what, what, Hey, Fiona, I've never read Damien. What's this book about? <laughs> uh, okay. So this, uh, just mechanically. Um, yeah boy uh, named Emile Sinclair. He's later revealed to be the author of the book. He's the narrator. Um, he meets this, uh, this older student named Damien, who's in a, uh, a year above him uh, in, in their, uh, their religious school. They're like Bible study school, whatever. What was it? You've read it more recently. Um, yeah, it's just like a Christian yeah, Bible Bible school or whatever. Anyway, Secondary school. He's kind of this like outcast. Damien doesn't really quite fit in with everyone, but everyone just sort of views him as strange. They respect him because he has this aura of like knowingness to him. Um, he has an aura. We'll just leave it there. But people kind of let him be. Uh, but anyway, he befriends Emile Sinclair, uh, who is a very sheltered young uh, boy who's never really questioned much in his life. And Damien leads him down the path of questioning everything in his life. He begins, I think there's this like, uh, I don't need to get too much into quotes here, but um, uh, he's just like, uh, questions are, what was it? yeah, he's just like, never stop asking questions. Um, good that you ask. You should always ask, always have doubts. Um, and he, he starts with this, uh, the, the biblical story of, um, of Cain and Abel, and he has this whole new interpretation on it. And um, so he just, he's this sort of shadowy figure that pops in and out of Emile Sinclair's life. But whenever they intersect, that Damien sort of points him down this new path of, of looking at the world in an entirely different and more critical way. And the book ultimately, it doesn't have a lot of like major plot points. Like he, Emile Sinclair is just like going through like growing up, going to college, and then there's a draft to go to World War One at the end of the book. Um, that's basically the timeline of the book, but it's, it, there's a lot of, and it's a pretty short book, but there's a lot of, um, self-searching that goes on in that time yeah yeah i think so yeah maybe this book happens in maybe three parts i'd say okay you know him well i'm just making it up but like 
the time of when he sort of the great the the first chapter is called like two realms right like the first mm-hmm. is the realm of family and innocence and wholesome religion and respectability and the second realm is you know the underworld he sees of men getting drunk in bars and, you know talking about taboo ideas and even just sort of like turning biblical themes kind of inversely on on themselves as Damien you know explains to him you know, like oh maybe actually like I, I, it was like uh Cain who was like the righteous one you know Abel was the wicked one or just stuff like that where taking very familiar themes and lessons or supposed lessons of the bible and then you know inverting the lesson in a, in a way, in a way that both scares him and me, like, oh my God, isn't that heresy, right? But also he's like attracted to the idea too. And so I think one thing that really caught me about this book is that there's so much actually like kind of cringy humor in this book. I mean, really? this book this book deals a lot with like obsession uh, uh-huh. in a really interesting way, which I'm happy to get into later, but also just, there's something kind of just like juvenilely hilarious about how guilty he feels in the beginning about being like, Tor- I mean, he's 10 years old. He's 10 years old and he's having these like very, um, I don't know, deep existential crises. And I think that's a really admirable of him as an author to kind of give that credit to someone so young. How like, you know, when you're really, really young, even 10 years old, you are perfectly capable of having very like dark, deep uh, kind of crit- critical thoughts about your own upbringing. And he has to adamantly defend that to the to the nth degree. He's like, uh, to anyone who, to those readers who don't think that a 10-year-old is, like, capable of having these thoughts and feelings, my book is not for you. He just mm-hmm. simply says that. He's like, yeah, you don't understand. You- yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> is this the weird, complex thoughts for a 10-year-old to have? And honestly, like, no, you know? Uh, yeah. 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 I had my most intense, I think, like, period of my entire life of like existential in regards to existentialism when I was 15 that was like probably the biggest just like crazy period for me yeah 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 and and how the the struggles that you have so anyway it's just him sort of becoming more less satisfied with his very religious wholesome family upbringing and getting more involved with you know being not so good of a student maybe going to the bars or something and, and mm-hmm. um, but also yeah sorry go on well, I was gonna say he's constantly um wanting to follow the herd and like uh every time Damien pops back up in the book he's like the person that sets him back on the path of of finding himself and Damien's quite moralistic about it he's kind of just like quietly judging him <laughs> and yeah. um and I, I love it. Like he's such a he's he's such a superior asshole. But he um he just yeah. And end of thought there. Yeah, yeah. So okay, I'm gonna read a quote here and maybe this will Okay. So to touches upon I think when you wrestle with these certain challenges and themes as like a young person, you also realize these challenges are actually part of a long lineage of people wrestling with these ideas you know you are not the first person to you know think about these things right so 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 this is Damien sort of talking about well maybe you know God as we perceive him like has flaws too and maybe the devil isn't actually just a personification of evil but just maybe something else like turning over a rock and seeing like a different perspective of things and so he says his words however touched me directly on the whole secret of my adolescence 
a secret I carried with me every hour of the day in which I had not said a word to anyone ever. What Damien had said about God and the devil, about the official godly and the suppressed devilish one, corresponded exactly to my own thoughts, my own myth, my own conception that the world was being divided into two halves, the light and the dark. The realization that my problem was one that concerned all men, a problem of living and thinking, and suddenly swept over me, I, I was overwhelmed by fear and respect as I suddenly saw and felt how deeply my own personal life and opinions were immersed in, this, in the eternal stream of great ideas. Yeah. I love how Hesse doesn't, uh, he never like, uh, stays, he never immerses himself too much in this world. Like these characters and this whole, even this whole book is just, uh, a vehicle for him processing his greater like existentialism and just thoughts about the world. So I, I yeah, I just, I love that he like brings it back to like, he, he could just say like, Oh, my, this guy had the same exact thought as me. We, we were, he could bring it back to Damien and say, wow, I really like felt this kinship with Damien. But it, it leads him to feeling this kinship with the wider world, with the wider mm -hmm. like mankind. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just like righteous anger, you know, towards his established beliefs growing up with. Yeah. I mean, okay, this is the same author who wrote Siddhartha, right? And so, and like Steppenwolf. Yeah. Um, you know, very, very famous book. So it's funny because I read Siddhartha when I was about 21 or something. So I feel like I, like that book was like very, I was reading the whole series of books, but like that one also especially was like, ooh. That, to me, that really hit me so succinctly. It's like, there's a kind of spiritual hunger that Herman Hesse, I think, just wears on his sleeve in a lot of his books. Yes. Um, and sort of talking about that, that hunger, whereas like all, all his characters, like, seem to have that too, or at least his, his main one here. Yeah, and whereas in Siddhartha, he uh, gets into the story of, uh, of Buddha. Um, uh, in this one, he really just kind of, goes off into other mystical uh side side streets he he he, he gets into abraxas who's a, like a real figure a real godly figure but um who's a who the heck's heard of him like he's yeah so well yeah so i guess i i definitely want to get to abraxas in a second um okay. so okay so right now in the plot so he's in school and you know his friend Damien gets him out of trouble with some other bully kid um and he uh, Emil feels a kind of sense of like like he owes him something maybe and then as the years go by he goes to a different school like a college or some sort of other high school type boarding school right and he kind of gets gets it's into drinking yeah. yeah it's all in Germany and he, he gets into drinking a lot and going out and kind of becomes like a drunk and kind of familiarizes himself with the kind of the, the vulgarities of that culture and kind of using it to, to seem like he's mature, right? It is more like his most kind of angsty, rebellious stage, I feel like. Yeah, so but a, a, common, a common theme is he's always searching for a mentor. He's always wanting um, the approval of some like uh, some older or other person so in that college period he had this uh what was his face i don't know he had some older older person who gives him like the seal of approval and that thus ends his period of like very angsty self 
uh, self-loathing inward um, focused uh, um, thinking and and so he's he's no longer like apart from all the other boys he's he's suddenly like uh welcomed into their their herd mm -hmm. um but then he gets out of that again yeah by looking at this girl named beatrice who <laughs> so you know it's this beautiful woman who she he never even has interaction with her right yeah and he he doesn't even describe her as like i don't even remember it like the emphasis is just like um, all of the the forms and the figures in this book that seem to like speak to him most directly are forms that have these like duality, um, these dual natures. And so Beatrice, I remember, like maybe he did describe her as beautiful or something, but it was like she represented the both the best of both like feminine and masculine qualities. Mm -hmm. And that's also how he describes Damien. And so I think mm -hmm. that duality is a huge theme in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, duality with all sorts of things, including male and female, um, which get into. Yeah, yeah. So there's this quote here when he's just describing Beatrice that I I underlined, and it's maybe one of my favorite quotes here. Um, my uh, my sudden conversion drew a good deal of mockery in its wake, but now I had something I loved and venerated. I had an ideal. I, I had an ideal again. Life was rich with intimations of mystery. And the feeling of dawn that made me immune to all taunts. I had come home again to myself, even if, even if only as the slave and servant of a cherished image. I don't know, something about that quote like really struck me and also like creeped me out too because I feel like it's so spot on in a lot of ways. Like the, the slave and servant of a cherished image, right? Mm -hmm. And I was sort of just like unpacking how many aspects of like the choices I made in my life was that because I wanted to like serve this cherished image in my mind, you know? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And Hess, the painter, like he, those elements definitely come in very strong with all, also with the music that he discovers later. Like he's also very into these like uh, very heavy classical pieces. But um, yeah, I think that that's summing up his just like spiritual yearning. His, his, he needs, um, he needs to have an object of worship to mm -hmm. in order to like actualize all of these inner feelings yeah so i guess what we, what you're referring to with the music is like later on in the next few chapters he he meets another person named what's his name again pistorius or whatever yeah pastorius pistorius who's yeah. an organist yeah mm -hmm. and he's really into his music and um anyway so I, throughout this part of the book he's sort of going through these different um, in, increasingly more healthy than the last obsession, but but <laughs> still <laughs> incomplete. Yeah, I mean, you know, he gets into like drinking, then he gets into being obsessed with this image of like Beatrice. Then he, you know, gets like, he, really he fitfully paints her and and repaints her. He get he buys a whole like thing of oils to to paint her image, and then at one point it like falls off his window and where he's like hung it to see how the light shines through it and it, it gets all muddled up in a in a pool of water and it gets warped and then he sees the image of Damien again and he's like oh I I like and then he starts just like he picks up something else he starts drawing the the old bird and the egg um which is a, a very like poignant symbol from his youth that him and Damien connected over and he like sends that he sends the picture does he send both pictures I forget but he sends them to Damien mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he gets. 
yeah that's all yeah. before he he is wandering on the street one dark dark stormy night and and here overhears an organist playing these dramatic songs yeah yeah so before we get into the organist maybe do you want to focus on on the painting beatrice and damien because like do you he, he seems to be obsessed with beatrice but only as like like a vehicle to be once again obsessed with damien right and then like is he just like using like is Beatrice interchangeable with Damien at a certain point? Like they all they all return to this like central image for him, um, and I think that fluidity is uh, is something he's discovering that that like um, stream that that stream eternal that he he's constantly like dipping his fingers into. But um, yeah, I I think that uh, at first. I mean, it's just, it's very, like, it's also very uh, characteristic of a young, like, college kid who's never had any, any like, interactions with uh, any romantic relationships whatsoever. He's just, like, mm -hmm. I'm not even going to ever, like, talk with her. And I really resonated with that when I first read it, because that was a lot of my crushes. I was like, I never, I'm going to actually talk with them, but I'm going to obsess forever and ever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, this book does such a great job of just portraying, like, adolescent, oh, I don't know, yeah, angst, insecurity, um, but also the very capable depths of their um, philosophical struggles, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. how, he, how he pulls himself in back, back into himself. And... Yeah, and th there's a lot of, like, serious rigor that goes on with, like, how he's conceiving of all these ideas, which I think you know, is, is often overlooked or, or under, um, you know, underestimated. Yeah, there is. And also I just, I mean, a little brief tangent is like at that age, I remember so many people, like whenever I got really obsessively into a new idea or a new um, fascination or, or thing that I wanted to do, I got like really, really into it. And people would be like, well, maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe that's what you're meant to do. And I love that Damien gave me this like permission to just like dive deep and then come right back up and dive deep into the next pool. Like it, it's not about like finding some like, uh, you know, career or purpose or whatever. It's all about just like, these are all very valuable experiences on the path to your self-discovery. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like each of these things that Emil encounters, you know, drinking, painting, music uh, even just like the the accumulation of, of of alternate ideas are all just kind of like pit stops you know and and he has a moment where he kind of exemplifies like each one as like mm -hmm. this is gonna this is gonna fulfill something and then you know it subsides and then he goes to the, the next thing yeah, organically. He he go he he's walking down a street, you know, t two months later and something else like comes up and and the book's very much just moving along yeah. through all these events. Yeah. I mean, Damien isn't even really in this book that much, right? Yeah. Doesn't feel like he is. Ooh, well, yeah, that was one of the um I I looked up some discussion questions and that was one which is like um uh why is the book named Damien at all? <laughs> like mm -hmm. He's, uh, it, it's told from the perspective of, of Emile Sinclair, um, and, uh, where was it? 
of the novel. Oh yeah, so Hess's novel is told from Sinclair's perspective and it tells the story of Sinclair's growth and education. Why then do you think Hesse chose to name the novel after the highly important but still secondary character, Max Damien? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I wrote a thing, I wrote a little note here um, that the name Damien sounds very much like demon or Damon. Um, and uh, in uh, ancient Greek belief, uh, a daemon was a divinity or a supernatural being of a nature between gods and humans, an inner or attendant spirit or inspiring force. So. Yeah. And I think even in the beginning of the book, it becomes clear that you're not really sure if Damien is a real person or not. <laughs> yeah. And by yeah. the end, you're like, well, no yeah. spoilers, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Cause, um, like when he's looking at the picture, he's like, not that the picture resembled me. I did not feel that it should. Because he's, he's looking at the picture. was supposed to of Beatrice. Of Beatrice. Then he realized it resembles Damien. Then he's like, wait, maybe it's me. And, and he says, um, not that the, that the picture resembled me. I did not feel that it should. But it was what determined my life. It was my inner self, my fate, or my daemon. That's mm -hmm. what my friend would look like if, if I were ever to find, if, if I were, if I were to find one ever again, that's what the woman I would love lo would look like if, look like, if I ever <laughs> were there to love one, mm -hmm. that's what my life and death would be like. This was the tone and rhythm of my fate. Yeah. Just yeah. beautifully, succinctly written. And I, this, honestly, this book also resonated with me so much because I like, I read it after like encountering a bunch of dream images, like in, in my dreams that were these shadowy figures that always like felt, I don't know, like I could never remember what they looked like, but they felt like a super critical, like key piece of my life. And then I'd wake to just like, well, who was it? Was it this other person? And, and that ultimately is just like, drove me to write a little like short story about the experience of just like wanting so badly to like see this image of of your like inner self or this uh, you know thinking that you're like dreaming about this super significant person and then what if it's just you know these are all these variations of yourself that you're dreaming about hmm hmm not sure i understand that but um well, yeah. What what if no. the what if these shadowy dream images that you can't remember in your waking life are just like you? What if you're you're like coming up with different? I mean, that's what dream analysis one one like school of dream analysis goes into. Like all the people that you encounter in your dreams are just like different versions of yourself, different moods, yeah. different. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to get deeper into the psychology stuff, probably yeah so cool all right so at some point he is what still a university student this is when he meets up uh, historius the the organist um, yeah i believe he's still he's like shaped up a little bit he's no longer on the brink of expulsion uh yeah. post beatrice uh and and then he's yeah then he meets pastorius historius yeah yeah meets pastorius who's an organist who um is also a bit of a kind of historical religious scholar too um mm -hmm. he wants know, he, to be a, theo a theologian mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that how you it? Yeah. yeah i think so 
Uh, yeah, and I, I love the way that the organist um, kind of describes like music about how music gets like outside of morality. It's like beautiful, but it also it doesn't belong to like you know, it's not good or evil, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how Pistorius seems to just know all this kind of ancient knowledge, right? And both Pistorius and I think Damien too, right? They both introduced to Emil this god named Abraxas, yes. right? Uh, and I, so I have some quotes. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk about sort of read some quotes within the book so that kind of you get a sense of contextually what Herman Hess is talking about when he uh, mentions Abraxas. Then I'll sort of talk about the historical research that I found about Abraxas. Uh, so Abraxas basically is just a kind of combination of like God and the devil, a combination of good and evil, um, but also... Yeah. And and Damien does first mention Abraxas. He he um, uh, Sinclair. I believe this is back in maybe the beginning of college. He's like at his desk one day. He finds a note slipped onto his desk. It's not signed or anything. Um, it just says like, um, how does it begin? I could like recite it if I remembered how it began. Uh, the bird flies to the, this is after um, Damien has sent the image of the bird flying from the egg. Um, and he's like, uh, the bird flies from the egg. The egg is God or the egg is the world. He who would be born must first destroy a world. Um, the bird flies to God. That God is Abraxas, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and so Abraxas is like, he, he, and, and then his professor is lecturing about gods and, and, symbology and whatnot that day and he he actually starts mentioning Abraxas and he describes him as this like god of both the this like devil and god of like good and evil mm-hmm. yeah um yeah on page 80 says but it appears that Abraxas has a much deeper significance we may conceive of the name as that of a godhead whose symbolic task is the uniting of the godly and devilish elements. And then later on, uh, they kind of dive in deeper, um, talking about, let's see, the, the, the delight and horror, man and woman uh, commingled, the holiest and most shocking were intertwined, deep guilt flashing through the most delicate innocence. That was the appearance of my love dream image and Abraxas too. Love had ceased to be the dark animalistic drive I had experienced at first with, with fright, nor was it any longer the devout transfiguration I had offered to Beatrice. It was both and yet much more. It was the image of an angel and Satan, man and a woman in one flesh, man and beast, the highest good and the worst evil. It seemed that I was destined to live in this fashion. This seemed my preordained fate. So, so yeah, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> as usual, gravitas and like super angstiness about everything. And um, one of my friends uh, actually, uh, when I mentioned that we were doing this podcast, is like, "Oh my God, you're so obsessed with Damien. Why are you? It's so like, it's just so simplistic. It's very like it has this fairy tale quality to it. And it's true. Like that's very much Herman Hesse's style. Um, that makes him a very good young adult author. Um, but I, so he's not, he's not like breaking out of the, the, um, traditional symbology of like God and the devil, but he is, he is, um, getting into this, uh, 
deeper sort of um, uh, more, I don't know, more pagan concept of, of worshiping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to that end, I did a little bit of research on like where this term Abraxas comes from. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that there's all sorts of little sort of crumbs and, and hints all over history but of course history is imperfect because we're all just kind of excavating it right um Mm -hmm. but so have you ever heard of the the gnostics you know who are the the gnostics were i i hear that a lot could you refresh my memory what that means so gnosticism it's so it's a kind of like pre-christian or or early christian so kind of remember christianity took hundreds of years before it suddenly took over the world of paganism right Mm -hmm. but so like within that time there was all sorts of super interesting little deviations and 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 sex of it and uh, gnosticism is a collection of ancient religious ideas and systems which originated in the first century a.d among early christians and jewish sects these various groups emphasized personal spiritual knowledge over orthodox teachings traditions and ecclesiastical authority. Um, so this is, you know, you could definitely call this, you know, the, I can see the Catholic Church calling this heretics, which they certainly did, right? You know, you, um, but uh, so Basilides, an early Gnostic teacher from Alexandria in Egypt, gave the name Abraxas to God or the great Archon, the God of 365 spheres or heavens for yep. each day of the year. Sources cite the seven letters represent the seven classic planets, and the original letters of the word in Greek add up to the number 365. Um, In Catholicism, the writings of the Catholic bishop Uranius became central to Christian theology in the second century. He believed that 365 heavens were created and that angels from the last heaven then created our world. In his work, he claims the ruler of all 365 heavens is Abraxas. Now, in the 4th century, one of his cohorts, Epiphanes, claimed Abraxas was the being above all beings. He further claims that Abraxas sent Christ to earth, not the maker of the world. The Catholic Church later maintained that Abraxas was a pagan god and labeled him a demon, according to J. Collins in the Infernal Dictionary. He goes on to describe the Basilidians as heretics, of course. Now, fast forward a couple, a thousand years, right? Carl Jung was a modern-day Gnostic and psychologist. He claimed Abraxas was a higher god than the Christian god and was actually a combination of god and the devil in his book, The Seven Sermons of the Dead, published in 1916. Jung was known for his explorations of the soul and or psyche and regularly entered visionary states to acquire mystical knowledge he sought. Okay. Sorry, one more thing about Carl Jung here. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going off. Um, Carl, Carl Jung described a three-stage development in the human perception of God. The first stage was that God appears undifferentiated. The second stage is the perception of a benevolent Lord and an evil devil in which each are separated to the point where the devil is finally banished. The final stage is the integration of the Lord and the devil. In his The Seven uh, Sermons of the Dead, he says, quote, Abraxas is the god whom it is difficult to know. His power is the very greatest because man does not perceive it. Man sees the summon bonum, the supreme good of the sun, and also the infinum malum, endless evil of the devil. But Abraxas he does not see, for he is indefinable life itself, which is the mother of good and evil alike. Uh, 
Abraxas is truly the terrible one, the sun and also the eternally gaping abyss of emptiness, magnificent even as the lion at the very moment when he strikes his prey down. His beauty is like the beauty of a spring morning. He is the monster of the underworld. He is the bright light of the day and the deepest night of madness. He is the mightiest manifest being, and in him creation becomes frightened of itself. Carl Jung quoted in Stuart Holdroyd's The Elements of Gnosticism is, Abraxas is, a thousand arm plop, a coiled knot of winged serpents, the hermaphrodite of the earliest beginning, the lord of toads and frogs, which live in the water, abundance that seeketh union with emptiness. <laughs> so, more content for us to dive over. Um, yeah, immediate reactions to all that. <laughs> is, your immediate reactions. <laughs> um, I just find it fascinating that uh, the demonization of old gods and the demonization of uh, things that are, you know, not <clears throat> uh, well understood or whatever, like Abraxas started off as a god. Um, and in fact, there's what he was like, there was a god for every 365 days, you said? Um, Each day, yeah. There were 365 yeah. layers of heaven. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really cool to imagine. But um, uh, then, yeah, I didn't like. Blah, blah, blah. Um, he, he, but then he becomes a demon later to people. And in fact, I remember first hearing about Abraxas myself in Charmed, uh, a great TV show. And Abraxas is a demon in Charmed who like steals oh. the witch's powers. Um, by reading everything backwards or whatever oh. from their book of shadows. Huh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's just, that's, that's fascinating. So he starts off as this like Greek God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a little fuzzy there, but this is, he's also, there's also a theory that this is where the term abracadabra came from as well. Mm. Um, and I, it's a little bit fuzzy because the, the, the Gnostics probably took his name from all sorts of different little odds and ends, which I'm not going to go down right now. Um, but I think the most like, intact version of Abraxas that, that symbolizes what we're talking about is from the Gnostic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, in the National Geographic article uh, in like 2019, says ancient Egypt gave rise to one of the world's oldest Christian faiths. Uh, uh, a noted Alexandrian thinker was Valentinius, whose interpretation of Christianity required believers to embrace divine knowledge. So I feel like the characters in Damien are very much taking a strong kind of Gnostic, Gnostic tradition. Where um, so a court um, in the 1940s, it was rediscovered because a lot of the writings on Gnostics are found in texts written by like the Catholic church, which is just like, they hated Gnostics. So mm -hmm. kind of, you know, difficult to really pin the accuracy of that. <laughs> but in the 1940s, they discovered a bunch of scrolls called the uh, Hot Nag Hammani, uh, where they kind of actually found more actual teachings by actual Gnostics. And they uh, basically it was assumed that Gnostics wanted to transcend the material world and enter the world of ideas where the souls could be free. So they basically said that there were two gods. There was a higher god and a lower god. The lower god, which is the god, you know, most familiar to us, who he just created the material world, the kind of lower material world. Mm. And then um, there was another god that was a higher god that created like souls and ideas and the metaphysical universe. Makes sense, right? It's a lot, a lot of work for one person. Yeah, really. Even a god. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just automatically siding with the Gnostics because uh, Christianity and uh, Catholicism are just, you know, super white patriarchal uh, religions and give us all of this messed up uh, uh, ideology we have today. What's, what's, what's interesting that I always need, need to be reminded is that, like, there's so many different sects of Christianity, like mm-hmm. hundreds, hundreds, maybe even thousands, you know, that all, you know, consider themselves followers of Christ. Right. Yeah. Or, um, but I think what's interesting is that people in this book, they don't seem to be like totally doing away with Christianity. They're not saying like, you know, fuck Jesus. They're just saying like, no, like my interpretation of Jesus is to, or Christianity is the tradition where you are constantly seeking out more knowledge, where like you don't place your faith in institutions, you place your faith on interpersonal exploration, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Where like, you know, God was the one who put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was the devil, you know, or Abraxas that like uh, was the snake, right? Because he's (laughs) there to just give you more knowledge. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Self-knowledge, it's, 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 it's gotta be the devil's work for sure Mm -hmm. yeah 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 um and anyway i have something so do we want to talk about the world war one stuff i mean wait because i have i have so i have a bunch of stuff bottled up that i think this like episode kind of connects to the current moment so yeah get into it well okay eventually we can talk about his mother too and all that that's a can of worms but um eventually uh, these two dudes emil and damien go off to fight in world war one right which is a really interesting thing because they spend the entirety of this book um talking about like discovery of like more high-minded ideas and ideals and then they just end up going off to fight in this pointless war (laughs) yeah yeah um that was uh one of the questions i highlighted was given that like um you have that's really where the most action of the entire book happens is in like the last couple of pages Mm -hmm. where they're like oh and world war one started happening and their bubble was burst and they all had to go to war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the yeah. way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, so Damien has been re, or, or Sinclair has been reunited with Damien and he has met Damien's mother and we'll get into that later, Frau Eva. Um, but they are all sort of hanging out together all the time. And then, uh, and then we, we get the, the little knowledge bomb that, oh yeah, this whole, whole book took place in the uh, wake, or I'm sorry, in the, um, uh, the period right before World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I find almost to be the most interesting part of the whole book. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, why? Because I can't tell if it undercuts everything that the entire book was talking about, or if it reaffirms it. Um, Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It seems like there was there's an entire generation, generations, multiple generations of, of people that lived in this period of, of in Europe where it had had unprecedented peace, you know, for hundreds of years leading up to World War 1, where Europe had been fighting wars for hundreds of years and then I think after I don't remember what the last war was, but from like the mid 1700s onward, Europe actually was 
pretty relatively peaceful. I mean, yes, they were colonizing all sorts of other places in the world, um, but like Europe itself had not been fighting each other. So I find it really fascinating kind of to, to dissect the cultural mindset of like what led millions and millions of people to sign up to fight in this pointless dandy war, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for these like, you know, quickly dissolving imperial powers um, and sense of nationalhood, national statehood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a great like 18 hour podcast called Hardcore History I was listening to that talks about World War One and how like- a little light reading for this. All these, ne- yeah, all these, these countries were just planning for hundreds of years about the sort of potential skirmish that would happen and all these very delicate alliances that were all kind of leaning on each other and how it all just kind of got out of hand and how they were sort of imagining, you know, fighting in a kind of, in a kind of war that was strategically and technologically bear no resemblance to the technology and like new machines of death that would, you know, soon to reveal themselves. Um, and how it just completely took everyone by surprise. Including horrible uh, different gases that they mm-hmm. were using. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no to chemical warfare. <laughs> Jenny uh-huh. yeah. um, and and um, it's funny because I watched this movie a couple weeks ago called The Lost City of Z, um, mm-hmm. which took place in the kind of lead up to World War One. It's about, you know, these like, English English lads, you know, who were part of like the military and part of it's, it's a whole generation of, of, of people that got to train and be part of these like like lords and like noble houses but didn't really have any any have any like war to gain any glory with you know and people like the main character he's like i'm getting older and like you know this is i only like have a limited amount of years to like earn my stripes you know and i'm just like going on these like hunts with my like troops and there's it, it, a bunch of like bored soldiers just who have nothing to do and are just thirsty. Once again, going back to that kind of sense of like thirst for a higher purpose, right? That can lead you to do some like not so noble adventures, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and I think, this, yeah, continue. You know, I'm just so to, to conclude, I just found it ironic that, that all these characters spent all this book, what seems like trying to attend, attain a level of like spiritual transcendence. And yet they seem so, just totally fine just resigning themselves to you know gallop away to this completely pointless war just for like the sheer adventure of it and the just this is what happens when the hunger for being part of something greater than yourself can lead to actually ironically destruction Mm, okay so that that's that's an interpretation of the characters uh reactions to this war i like i also was like really um confused when uh, it's revealed that like Damien goes and he becomes some kind of general in the war. And you're like, I didn't see that coming. You don't seem to be at all. Like he, when the war first breaks, when news of the war first breaks, he's just like, you know, we've been anticipating this moment for a while now. We, we knew that society was like leading up to this and, and we, uh, you know, very Western, Western focus there, but, uh, quote, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm looking for a quote. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Um, and just real quick uh, reflection on what you just said. So this mm-hmm. this uh, book was written the year after World War II ended, uh, 1919. Uh, World, uh, I'm sorry, World War One was 1914 to 1918. And uh, this uh, in in some of the back pages of the book uh, that's 
um, in the you know republished edition, they they talk about how this book was a, a zeitgeist of the times to people because they were coming out, they were reading it after World War One, as they were sort of blinking, dazed, coming from the uh, emerging from the the horrors and destructions of the war. And I I don't think that the book is super pro-war. I just think they they see it as this necessary upheaval that's going to take place. They're very like um, agnostic on the whole like they, they don't come down on, on one side of like condemning violence. They're just like this is which sounds really bad right now but um, th they're very much like these are the like like nature like mankind is going to just like go through its its turmoil like this. Mm -hmm in order to, you know, achieve a greater understanding. Yeah, and Damien basically says that. In fact, the one quote in this book that makes me rethink my pessimistic interpretation of the war is, you know, Damien says, Damien had known so much about it ahead of time. How strange that the stream of the world was not to bypass us anymore that it now went straight through our hearts and that now or very soon the moment would come when the world would need us, when it would seek to transform itself. Damien was right. One could not be sentimental about that. The only remarkable thing was that I was, was to share the very personal matter of my fate with so many others, with the whole world, in fact. Well, so be it. And that's really interesting. It's a kind of like rallying cry to be like, huzzah, don't be too sentimental. Embrace the current moment of your history, which I can't help but, but like, you know, assign to our personal place in it at the moment, you know? Yeah, well, at the same time, not, uh, not condoning violence. No, not condoning violence. <laughs> well, I mean, condoning, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely, like, there is not condoning violence on, on, on a, a grand institutional level. I'll just say. I mean, you know, we can burn a precinct down. It's fine. Um, <laughs> well, it's, um, yeah, I, he seems to acknowledge that, yeah, the war itself, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really give a shit about, like, who it is I'm fighting, but I just know that the world needs to go, you know, through this kind of rough period so we can emerge on the other side into the world that we need to, which you know, you don't need to condone or not condone violence to see that very inevitable reality. Like, we're just going to need to go through some shit to, like, we're gonna, if we're going to create a new world, we need to struggle to, to, to create it. That's what a struggle is, you know? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and in light of, like, people going to these protests right now that we're seeing just sort of to engage in that, like, historical moment, and to just like see the struggle play out. Like I also just want to reflect that I, uh, I have a divergence in this context of, of belief in that like I, you know, sincerely, uh, I, this part of the book doesn't really resonate as much because I, I really, you know, want people to be like engaging in this moment who want actual change to happen, not just like change for change's sake, but just like, really are like seeing like can point to the specific demands we need to be making as it pertains to our current moment. Yes, yes, yes. Fighting uh for uh <laughs> fighting for, for for justice for 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 black lives is uh better than World War 1. 
<laughs> we, can yeah. condone, we can condone that anyway without without going too far on making comparisons here because that's some messy shit but right. um yeah anyway it, to, to me it, it 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 conveyed something even more elemental than like should we or should we not condone violence like how how gleeful should we be galloping into you know the brave new world exactly you know um and and i think where it, it basically says like don't be sentimental you know or like you can be sentimental but don't use don't use your sentimentality as a reason to like flinch um and um but it's interesting because there's another quote earlier in that that basically that I also resonated with about his like suspicion for tranquility. Like, mm-hmm. um, I had a per, I had a, I had a present pre presentiment presentiment <laughs> that this was a was a foretaste of that new and higher community which we speculated about so much in him now hanging out with Damien and his mother at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Yet, at any moment, this happiness could produce in me the deepest melancholy, for I knew very well that it could not last. It was not my lot to breathe fullness and comfort. I needed the spur of tormented haste. (laughs) Um, Which is like, ooh, that one struck, that one struck. He said it himself, he needs torment. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I can't relax because I need to attend to some crisis right now. Or... Uh or I can anticipate crises coming. You know? We're being haunted by our future. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I was, I was, okay. Uh, we're we're straying from commenting on the protests, but I was thinking about like this brave new world in in the wake of our pandemic right now that we're also uh, that's um, that's very much a uh, intertwined with with the societal. Um, upheaval for justice and we just it you know it hit me the other day uh, taking this like walk and looking at the clouds and thinking on all these like summers in the past where it just like had all these like great moments just walking around and like going door to door talking with people and um it, it struck me in that moment like you're not going to be doing that anytime soon like that world is dead that world in which you could go and do that in which you could like go and just like take in this new state that you've moved to and uh you know neighborhood by neighborhood and get a sense of like how people are living their lives you're not able to do that right now and you a lot of the um the uh friction we're seeing uh, with people not adhering to uh, to basic common sense guidelines of how we should uh, conduct ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, you know, going out to bars and to uh, the South is just a shit show right now. Um, is is I think just a um, is coming is not is having this like nostalgia for the old world and not seeing that like we are in a brave new world right now and and just wanting to maintain it real your semblance of normalcy at any cost mm-hmm. yeah and so i do like that damien's like you, you gotta you gotta shed Rip that band off yeah 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 man talking about this book is like trying trying to keep it like between these two lanes here without going off. To I know. <laughs> that's, that's the sign of a great despite, book. <laughs> despite yeah. your best efforts. Yeah, it is. It full really of ideas. Is. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So how, how much longer do we have to talk about it, though? I mean, we can keep going for as long. We've been talking for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's a few more things I want to convey here. So can, can I read to you a quote that I think uh, uh, turns, my, turns my initial pessimistic view around here? And I have another theory about what their motivation is to join the war. We could all use a little less pessimism. Okay, well, I don't know if about this because hot take, it's a death drive. They're, they're, they're going to World War I literally to transcend their physical bodies and die. Oh, so, or, or at least according to, to, to Damien. Damien mm-hmm. says, I can feel the approaching conflict. It's coming, believe me. And soon, of course, it will not improve the world. Whether the workers kill the manufacturers or whether Germany makes war on Russia will merely mean a change of ownership. But it won't have been entirely in vain. It will reveal the bankruptcy of present-day ideals. There will be a sweeping away of Stone Age gods. The world, as it is now, wants to die, wants to perish, and it will. And I just can't help but think, like, with the thing, with his his very almost strict adherence to Gnostic beliefs about wanting to transcend the material world, either on a, on a societal level or on like a literal personal level, like transcend my body. Like, I don't know. I can't, I can't help but, 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 but realize that. There's a quote even during the war when it says, many, very many, not only during the attack, but at every moment of the day, war in their eyes, the remote, resolute, somewhat possessed look, which knows nothing of aims, good, evil, right? Nothing of aims and signified complete surrender to the incredible. Um, so it's, it's a weird, almost like, like, it's, it's a fucking death drive. I feel like that's like, that's kind of what it is. It seems like, um, or yeah. at least to like Damien. Yeah. I mean, and let's go back to the, the, um, bird coming, emerging from the shell quote. Like he, he who would be reborn must first destroy the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's just bringing it back. These, all of these themes are cyclical. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that, like... It's so pagan. Do you think that pagan, huh? Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have another idea I want to dump at some point. But do you think that, that Damien, like, is... Do you have any dis- disagreements or does something smell kind of weird, like, with his... He seems to be very pessimistic. Like, he's like, yeah, like, this isn't going to do anything. It's just like a change of ownership, you know? whether you know the workers take over or whether you know russia destroys us or whatever but it'll just reveal the bankruptcy of our society which in a lot of cases i think he's spot on to talk about world war ii or world war one in those terms mm-hmm. like, if that's true like why is he so giddy to gallop gallop off or gallop away well he's pretty he's been pretty anti-society from the start and so I think he's just looking forward to this necessary rebirth. And if it costs his life, his life and the life of everyone, you know, that's, they're all part of it. He's recognizing that they're all part of the system mm-hmm. and uh, he's uh, removing him, his own like sentimentality for life from that in a very, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, just uh <clears throat> I don't know, selfless kind of, not selfless, but yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, so I just, I, I think that um, 
Hess's right to get like super political here and his characters are not at all like close to real characters, but they are like, uh, they are facets of Hess's like viewpoints um, and really like captured the feeling of people reading this book right after World War One, mm-hmm. of just like, you know, what was the point of this? Like, why did so many people die? Mm-hmm. And I think he, he had to sort of like capture that feeling of like for this necessary he's trying to make meaning of it he's like it was for some like necessary uh rebirth regeneration of the world yeah 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 it sounds like he's trying to make sense of it himself yeah Yeah. which yeah time timeline wise i think he was yeah yeah Hmm. Um, this book was also wildly popular when it first came out that that's and it's it's uh, experienced several resurgences one i yeah, talk about this what one i wanted to get into was uh in korea it's like taken off what? um yeah what um <laughs> like in that, south korea it's super popular yeah huh. um and but yeah so when it was first when it first came out um it experienced this huge popularity um people called it like the zeitgeist of of the times like it, I'm, I'm not sure they called it that but they it, it was seen as the like prevailing mood of young people um at in in the wake of world war one of this like just uh um these characters they they were sort of like godlike in a way and describing this necessary like fight and co uh, cohabitation of good and evil with each other so I think that it really like struck a chord and then like today it um it ha- I'd stumbled like I just searched uh on google and stumbled on this article that talks about uh or it's a blog sorry why Koreans love Herman Hess uh and, and Damien in particular um there was this uh popular critic uh Lee Dong Jin uh host of the Red Book Room uh, podcast and he said there are two kinds of people those who read Damien and those who don't yeah. uh, so that was a very interesting read and they the author kind of gets into why that might be um, and why there's a lot of uh, it's all wrapped up in this sort of like um, idea that uh, in Korea like the they're so like they're all the students are on this like educational or this like conveyor belt so focused on just like preparing uh for their college entry entrance exam um and preparing them for these bright futures which they haven't had the chance to figure out in the first place like what makes those futures so good um hmm. and just like the themes of nonconformism and and whatnot um and achieving eschewing the herd and achieving the individualism of the future uh hmm. is, that makes sense. yeah is something that i think are enduring themes of this book yeah so much of especially the like the first half of the book it it made me it's sort of like it gives you a nostalgia for a time you never lived in like it just seems like yeah. even though they're exploring all these ideas there's this, this is pervading sense of like innocence throughout the whole thing where like this is the time in your life and a time in the world even where or a time of time and space in the world where like you, there wasn't really any big upheavals going on you could just get go to school talk about ideas i mean it, you really had the like time and space 
and lack of immediate crises to really just like dive into some of these ideas and you know just be a schoolboy lad and you know just like kind of just like mess around and if you want to go drink you can do that if you want to talk about all these heavy ideas you can do that and it's just like you there's a really there's a sense of like leisurely leisureliness to everyone that even when they're they're dealing with these heavy ideas just kind of seeps through that really sets up the the world war one call to arms really strikingly um ah the good old days of uh pre-world war ii germany where everyone was so innocent (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, it's it's interesting it's interesting i mean it does such a great job at at um getting into the mindset both of of any adolescent you know but also specifically the mindset of a time in uh, history leading up to world war one Mm, yeah um and yeah i think that he has a lot of um you just your quote kind of got at it but he he has a lot of uh, commentary on industrialization and Mm -hmm. that was another point that the author of this uh blog commenting on korean obsession with damien got into is just that like there's this uh obsession with like um uh westerners having uh this um what was it uh i an idolization of westerners is having um the creativity nonconformity effectiveness and sheer wealth that uh koreans see their country is lacking Hmm. um interesting so i i think he yeah i think he has a lot of commentary on on um uh the world changing basically from this like simplistic pre um, almost pre-industrial pre like super big machines of war of you know huge globalization um just small little hamlets yeah. in germany yeah there i think yeah i think there's definitely a kind of pining for pre-industrialized lifestyle yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah i think about korea too it's like korea without getting too deep into it like hey they're like a very hot, heavy capitalist country that is also kind of on the brink of, of war, <laughs> like at all times, you know, mm-hmm. um, that is just kind of, it's a perfect combination of circumstances to make for a kind of existential pondering of like, what, what's the point of all this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, cool. Well, I'm glad we got into that. Uh, yeah. Oh, also another, if we're talking about the timeline of the various resurgences of popularity of this book, um, another, great rebirth of interest in Hess um, and Damien was in the 60s. So go figure. Mm. It's around all these war times or, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I feel like Siddhartha was probably popular then too, as as American culture was like going back to all these mm-hmm. Eastern, Eastern cultures. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's, a, it's like you could really absorb these themes at, on an individual level or on an entire society level too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, huh. yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, so the, I guess the only thing that I wanted to spit out here is this, like, okay, maybe if there's a clear pal- parallel, great. If I'm trying to force it, whatever. But uh-huh. I've been reading this other book lately. Yeah, <laughs> called, go for it. Me, called In the Dust of This Planet by mm-hmm. Eugene Thacker. Um, it's called the, like, The Horror of Philosophy. So both looking at like the, the philosophy behind certain horror movies, but more importantly, the horror of philosophy itself. Basically like horror as, as a stand-in word, 
for embracing the limits of what we can understand and acknowledging those limits um, and, and how various philosophers have like dealt with that. Um, which I think with the idea word. of horror. No, no, the idea of, of like, what are the limits of what we can understand? Oh, okay. Which, which is a central theme in a lot of horror movies, especially like cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, or like supernatural horror, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so, but the introduction of the book talks about this, this theme called basically thinking about our own vantage points and how they relate to the society, the external world, and the world we can't conceive of. Even. So represented in words like the world, representing the world for us, that's society, you know, that, that, that's the same world that like we're trying to save, right? Like, we're going to save the world or, oh God, like, the world's on fire right now. Like th- th- that's the world, the world, the world for us, made for us. Then there's the world in, in itself and that can be described as the earth, right? These are all the microbes, all the, the, the insect world, the plants. These are all where the ologies come from. You know, this is where a lot of the like sciences come from. And so, you know, the, the world in itself can be different than the world for us, but it also can kind of overlap in, at times as well. Like, you know, when there's a big hurricane, we are reminded that the world made for us only takes place within the world for itself. Like the world for itself has its own, you know, uh, systems that we're just living in, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third one is the planet. The planet represents the world without us. A, a world outside of like the world for us or even the world in itself. And so I, I can't, so, uh, um, you know, the world in itself or the world for, the world for us, which is the world, represents God, right? Um, mm-hmm. The world in itself represents the devil, or this is where a lot of pagan r- r- religions come from. So, mm-hmm. um, or or like the idea of the devil being like a kind of inversion of the of the like godly world, whereas mm-hmm. paganism is something that that happens outside of those two dichotomies, right? And yet, both Satanism and paganism still inhabit um, the world in itself, right? Like the earth. The world outside of us, which is the planet, which encompasses the entire cosmic planet, planetary spheres, you know, out there. This is like something that even when we, even when, when we imagine the world without us, we're still stuck in a framework where we're like placing ourselves in it. We're still unfortunately limited by our ability to assume that we know what things are going to look like if we just hypothetically remove ourselves from the picture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the world without us represents a kind of like um, uh, a kind of emptiness uh, 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 outside of morality, outside of good and evil, outside of even the the revolt that evil has against good. This is just a kind of external universe that encompasses the ideas of good and evil um, because we can't conceive of it like at all, mm-hmm. even as yes, a concept. Certainly can't. Huh? Hesta certainly can't. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So anyway, I don't know if this like fully ties back into things, but I just like the entire time when I was reading both these books, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is, we can like plug these things into each other. These are like very universal. Um, yeah, so yeah, God is the world, the devil is the earth, and Abraxas is the planet. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I love that, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how we use those words. Um, too. 
And I feel like there's a lot of, uh, when we want to go like really, there, there are levels of magnitude, right? Like the earth feels very like grounded and it feels very much like this is the earth, this, this planet, this little blue dot is, is like where our home is. It's like synonymous with like home and whatever. And then world is like, when we're trying to describe, you know, some big thing, like this is something the whole world uh, experiences. And it's interesting that that's um, tied with this uh, very like um, moralistic uh, thing in Christianity of just like, if it's, you know, if it's too like in the body, in yourself, it's not a, uh, you're doing something wrong. It's, it's, it's sin. It's sinful. Um, but that's honestly like the only place where we can experience our, the, our own experience of the world, (laughs) experience our own experience. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, planet definitely is just this, like, you know, I think of the solar system. I think of this like whole place that's, that we'll never really touch. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this book, and you kind of touched on it in terms of like scales, right? Like at first yeah. glance, it sounds like I'm describing a kind of problem of scale, right? Yeah. Uh, but actually, and the, and this is sort of the, the theme of, of the book, the the uh, in the dust of this planet, is about how actually the concept of, of the world or the kind of pesky, disturbing reminders of the wordless physical backdrop of the universe actually finds its way into our everyday lives and kind of seeps its way back into the world and the earth. You know, it's not some out there concept. It actually kind of seeps back into the everyday world and kind of haunts us, haunts us with its implications. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're saying, sorry, that was the planet or which, what haunts the, us? The planet, the concept of the planet. They mm, yeah. are like the, uh, the, the unthinkable world. Right, and that's the that's the one that's used in the title, in the dust of this planet, right? I don't know if that's what it's. I haven't gotten to the point where they're really referring to the title itself yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I probably, yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, so I had to I have to get off get that off my chest. Maybe it doesn't make any sense, but that's just how I process ideas. <laughs> we'll build on it. We'll build on it. Okay, this cool. is uh, we're 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 ultimately just you know. If, figuring out our own spiritualities through this podcast that's the the ultimate aim so we've got to have a a a context a relationship with with the world as it is now and yeah um yeah yeah i really i really do the total i don't know this is just my own connection with what you were just describing with the whole uh distinction between those three different words um one of the uh, organizers of this call I was on Sunday that was uh, describing the history of um, uh, police in, in the U.S. Um, they at, they were very much into um, it's a little hippie for me, but they were into like grounding and like feeling feeling uh, your your body. And they're like, don't get too academic with all of this stuff. Like, don't don't go like too much in the mind. Like, feel it. Uh, resist resist going into that like academic mode um because uh you've got to like feel the weight of this you've got to like feel it in your actual body Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. i i do think that 
spirituality has a tendency to get like super heady and super outside of the body. But the thing I appreciate about Damien so much is that he's, he's, he's propagating, or I'm sorry, he's uh, advocating for this, this God that is like of the world of like, of the here and now, not these other realms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't, it sounds like he's like playing with a lot of, of ideas, but not really being like, this is the correct path or this is what everything means. Even I, I appreciate the ambiguity actually of, of a lot of the things in this book. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't come out and say, this is the path. Yeah. 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 Okay. Can we get also another elephant in the room in regards to this book? Yeah. What, is there some like homosexuality in this book? Like, what's the deal with like with Damien being or, or, or Emil being like really entranced by like Damien this whole time? And, and you know, he keeps, keeps remarking on his like fine masculine features. Right. There's a lot of very sensual language in this book. Yeah. Some kid in my um, high school class remarked on that in like our our second discussion, second group discussion of the book, and he was like, he's always talking about like sniffing the soap off the nape of Damien's neck, like sitting <laughs> behind him in class. Like he's yeah. super just like, and then the kiss at the end, like he's so like into him. And I, um, at the time, I did not appreciate that comment. Um, but I think now I can, uh, and I, and I still am like, you were like, just bringing that up for the laughs or whatever. But I, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think we now we've not talked about this on like two of our episodes and it is a definite like um, it's a definite theme of just like just I don't know discovering yourself through see like potentially here. I'm just like running with this thought but like uh, discovering your form your form that is like similar to another person's form it's not it's not the opposite sex it's not like a body that you have no familiarity with you're discovering yourself through a body that you do have familiarity with like a body that is similar to your own and um i i definitely get his just like he has an equal obsession for all well not an equal obsession but he has an obsession with all of his mentors anyone who's like helping him to process he immediately has this like reverence for um he seems to be very obsessive yeah yeah he's yeah. very uh, very uh he's a seeker he's a, he's a seeker mm-hmm. um yeah. but yeah i don't know did you have any other like thoughts on on like what that might represent in the book or yeah i mean there's the kind of the most obvious kind of historically placed interpretation of the homosexuality it's like okay this is this is still published in 1919. Like it was probably still pretty taboo to openly talk about this stuff, like Maybe, homosexuality. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Um, so I mean, I there, there's that interpretation of it. It's just like okay, he's he's he is straight up, obviously, just talking about homosexuality in a kind of like unsayable, unthinkable, but just coming up right up right up to the line in saying it overtly. But but yeah. but, he, but he can't both because of the realistic time period constraints and also the themes in this book too, which are very convenient. You know, he's talking about breaking through this sort of old code of morality that is not serving anyone. Um, 
and everything is just right below the surface. Um, and um, yeah, and it's, it's funny, we were just talking before we recorded this about the, the movie, The Lighthouse, which I'm just still digesting, but about how like, that's another movie that talks about like, you know, the role, like what is, what is the role of like mas- of like masculinity in society and like mm-hmm. like masculinity trying to like wrestle with itself, you know? Um, and and like that's there's a, that there's very like homoerotic like moments in that movie that they like they like can't really do anything about because that's the time period they're living in and and that's all just like rolled up into this like just repressed like toxic cycle or something. Um, and then there's the like hermaphrodite aspect of, of Abraxas and there seems to be a lot of just like gender fluidity in a lot of these descriptions in the book. Yeah um, I like that way of describing it. Um, I feel like he because he's not without his uh, his crushes on women for sure mm-hmm. um, but he uh, he's always just uh drawn to something that honestly resonated with me a whole whole bunch um which is just this uh more androgynous or hermaphroditic um uh form which is it's not a focus on like yourself your own image and it's not a focus on other people it's it's this like blend of like you and other and in this like one form and uh, that is, I don't know, something we could devote a whole episode to probably. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of Plato and, in um, the whole, uh, kind of the, the souls theory, the twin souls or whatever. I, was that the twin? That's not the twin flames. That's, um, the soulmate theory. I don't know, whatever that like we used to be man, uh people used to be uh both have both like male and female parts and then uh the gods got jealous so they split them in two and so we're always looking for our other half or um that's uh seriously outmoded thinking and all that but i uh i think it's just an interesting um interesting in the context of like finding yourself and self-discovery is is searching for this uh this otherness which is within you too but finding it in the i don't know in a a familiar form Hmm. is the best way i can describe it right now yeah no that makes sense speaking off the cuff yeah yeah do you have any i don't know what would it be to uh uplift this kind of dual natured god in society today what would that be like do you think that that would be uh that would meet with a lot of resistance to have a dual natured god or a dual na- or a like a hermaphroditic god even i think a dual natured god is a concept that i feel like would come to most people quite naturally yeah commonsensically like yeah of course yeah Um, i think we we get so focused on gender and and that's because we've you know christianity and and especially in the west has been such a like patriarchy that it's been uh perpetuating patriarchy so hard 
and it's very male dominated in its imagery and, you know, power. But uh, I think it would be radical actually to have um, a like hermaphroditic uh, God form that we, that was mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think maybe it's, it was a inclination since the sixties to kind of bring back the, the goddess, the divine feminine, you know, we had a whole decade of talking about things like the Da Vinci code and how the Catholic church, you know, suppressed the uh, divinity of like the mother figure in Jesus or like maybe like Mary Magdalene and how like, Oh, like people pray to Jesus, but it was actually like the, the, the key to this knowledge is actually found either in, divine mother figure or in Mary Magdalene in the like female figure, right? And it's sort of like, okay, stage one, maybe like stage two is like actually transcending that too. And actually be like, no, no, no. I mean, like we shouldn't do like an entire course correction here because of like historical patriarchy. It's actually, we should be merging these two concepts instead of like just swinging back and forth from one to the other or something. But that's just my off the cuff thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, um, I didn't think it was possible. I just might be talked out on Damien. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, okay, anything. So when we end this recording, like anything else, you're gonna regret that you forgot to bring up. Probably everything. Probably. <laughs> literally everything. This is such an important book. I would say yeah. go read it. But mm -hmm. yeah, I just, um, I don't know. I, I really think that I love the theme of just like he he drives it home so much like knowledge is empowerment in Damien. Mm -hmm. Um and I I think it's it's a very uh impactful fairy tale to read. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's see if figuring out a quote we can end with here. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I think if you'll uh if you trust me to to find something. I do, I do. Okay, okay. All right, this is uh Okay. Page 126 and 127. So I'm okay. Humanity, which they loved as we did, was for them something complete that must be maintained and protected. For us, humanity was a distant goal toward which all men were moving, which image no one knew, whose laws were nowhere written down. We who bore the mark felt no anxiety about the shape the future was to take. All of these faiths and teachings seemed to us already dead and useless. The only duty and destiny we acknowledged was that each one of us should become so completely himself so utterly faithful to the active seed which nature planted within him that in living out this growth he could be surprised by nothing unknown to come mm. <laughs> when when was that in the book for context well, that's at the very end that's like i think the last chapter when he's talking with the mother with damien at their house i think okay sorry uh no, I, I love that that is the one that we're, um, <laughs> that we're ending on that, that goes back to the whole individualism of the future, the just like unknownness of it and the, 
just uh, we're we're constantly creating it as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, Fo- follow what what rings true to your nature found within you. Yeah, you and to bring it, um, to bring it back to a quote at the beginning of the book that that makes me think of. He uh, says, like, I think this is actually in Thomas Mann's introduction that like each. No, no, it's it's in the beginning of Damien, I'm pretty sure. But he says, like, you know, each uh, each one of us holds, like, the entire, like, history of mankind and everything. Like, if if, um, uh, if everyone was to die and only one person, like, survived, they could recreate everything again. Um, and that is precisely why, like, uh, you can't, like, just kill a man with a single bullet. Because uh, hmm. their whole our our self lives on in our ideas whatever um Mm. but yeah i i like that he is uh very faithful to that that theme of like uh we're all moving towards some inevitable end of uh discovery for lack of a better word Mm. yeah I also like this quote, only the ideas that we actually live are of any value. Mm. Yep. I would think that would resonate with you. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'm sure we'll be back soon with a different interesting topic. Um, but That'll be very interesting. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, I, I like this idea of doing like a little book club. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll take okay. readers' questions next time. Mm-hmm. We'll have yeah. Collins. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so long, everyone. Until next time. Bye. Bye.